Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. This week, we continue on in our summer series on the women of the Hebrew Bible with the story of Tamar as told in Genesis 38, 1-26. This podcast was originally released as a special episode on October 5th, 2022. We hope you enjoy it. Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian in Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. Today is a special day. It's a special episode, the first in our little bonus series focused on the stories of women in the Bible. Today we read the story of Tamar in Genesis 38. We bristle immediately at the hypocrisy of the men in the story who only pretend to hold to the societal norms they impose upon her, and in doing so they leave Tamar stuck in a holding pattern after the death of her husband. We draw out the profoundly different experiences of the man and the woman who both lose a spouse in the story. And we think about the risk and lack of privacy that seems built into the experience of walking through the world with a body that can get pregnant. It is a story for our time indeed. But we would be remiss if we did not also raise up Tamar's strategic thinking, profound loyalty, and amazing courage. Thank you for joining us. Bobby, how are you? Hey, Amy. I'm good. I'm good. I have started back at school at Hendricks for the first time in two years, and Mm -hmm. it is a lot of things. You have to wear. You have to wear what we call in my office hard pants. (laughs) I like not sweatpants. Yeah, hard pants. Yeah, makes me sad. Today I have on my collar. My shirt has a collar. I'm wearing a belt. For goodness' sake. Oof. This is unacceptable. <laughs> I know. It's like I'm a professional or something. I don't even know. Yeah, well, um, it's fun. Well, we'll have to. I'm thinking about the text we have for today about the role of clothing in it. Oh, yeah. So so we'll we'll get to all of that. But today is a special day for us, Bobby. It well, it's a special episode. Yeah. A special yeah, day, yeah. a special episode. So we have decided that over the course of this year, every certain number of episodes, I don't know, it'll be a surprise for you. There's a special episode that's focusing on the stories of women in the biblical text. Yeah. And so this week we are reading the story of Tamar, whose story is sort of inside the Joseph novella. It it both makes sense and doesn't make sense that that's where it is, Mm -hmm. but welcome to biblical text, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. Welcome to Biblical Text. Um, It's in Genesis 38. The story is the whole chapter. It's pretty self-contained. We may leave out the last couple of verses because I don't think they're overly relevant to the lens that we're doing today, the story of her her giving birth to twins at the end. This is, I feel like one could answer this question in a million different ways, but to get us into this text, my friend— 
what would you want to place in our minds or like put on the table before us? I mean, what what you said is exactly right, that this story appears in between two episodes in the Joseph narrative for reasons that are not really at all clear to me. For me, I think, you know, this story kind of reads on its own. One of the main characters here is Judah, who is one of the 12 mm-hmm. sons of Jacob, who is one of the brothers, obviously, then of Joseph. And so this story, the main male character in this story is one of the 12 sons of Jacob and the, what do you call that? Eponymous ancestor. Oh, yeah. Of the tribe of Judah. So like this, this is about a significant biblical character. Yes. Or at least a character yes. with a significant history. Yeah. What do you, what would you say? What would you say about this text? I, first, I will also say that there are certain texts that you and I do together where I receive text messages <laughs> as you are preparing yourself for the text. And those are always like really interesting conversations because something has gotten you going. And so this, I got a, mm-hmm. at least one text about this one, about how much this text was kind of agitating you. And so- I just want to acknowledge mm-hmm. that first of all, and then to say, usually your agitations lead to really interesting conversations. <laughs> I mean, we'll see. This time, what I part of what I texted was that perhaps my agitations will lead to the advent of new technology on the podcast, so we can bleep <laughs> out the streams of profanity yeah. that may come pouring out of my face. Yeah. No, I, I'll try to keep it. Keep it PG. It's funny because I've read this story many times. I know this story. Yeah. But I guess I guess reading it at this particular moment in American history, yeah. it really just fills my heart with quite a lot of rage. So we'll see what we can do with that <laughs> that's productive. Yeah, I, I, look, I look forward to it. We'll see where it goes. I'm going to divide the text into a lot of kind of small chunks. Some of them we're not going to talk about for very long. Some of them are, are meatier and we'll talk about them for longer. But I'd like to start us with just just the introductory part of the story, picking up in verse 1, and I'm reading from the NJPS translation. About that time, Judah left his brothers and camped near a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. Then Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite woman, whose name was Shua, and he married her and cohabited with her. She conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. Once again, she bore a son and named him Shelah. He was at Chazib when she bore him. Do people name their kids Ur? Like, is that, <laughs> I don't, like, <laughs> I'm not really trying to be funny, but, I, but I'm curious about. No, but it's hard for it not to be, it's hard for it not to be funny. Yeah. <laughs> reading it in English, Ur. Hi, I'm Ur. <laughs> yeah. Yeah? My well, mom used to tell a well. story about one of her college professors who named his dog What? And then people would come up to him and say, what's your dog's name? And he'd be like, how did you know? <laughs> oh, wow. Anywho, that's, that's not a, the point. Um, good yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good story, Bobby. Yeah, good, good, story, story. good story. Yeah, no, Ur is, Ur is a weird name. Actually, I'm glad we're talking about names because – it strikes me a little bit. First of all, maybe this, I don't know if this goes without saying. It names two people in the beginning of this text that Judah has met. Yeah. One named Hira and one named Shua. 
So, which is which is interesting, mostly because it says that he got married, but we don't actually know his wife's name. We know his wife's father's name. Right. That's exactly right. And and we also know that he is moved near some other guy who's actually named a couple of times over the course of this story. He's sort of like Judah's wingman mm-hmm. over time. I just find I just I just find the information that is given and not given in these introductory verses to be interesting and definitely to to paint a picture of a pretty male world, but not one that's uncommon in the biblical text. Yeah, I mean it is interesting just in the beginning of this text that we've got definitely we're in a man's world and we're in a world that's interested in ethnicities. And so we've mm-hmm. put a lot of potential conflict on the table already. What else would you say about that? I mean, I think I actually really like that you brought out the fact that it uh, that it mentions, you know, we have a Canaanite here and we have an Adulamite. So now, you know, we have the interaction between different peoples, which I get maybe, we don't know at this point of the story what this suggests, but it definitely, you get the sense of like, this story, at least in part, is taking place in what I would call like a public sphere. It's talking about a relationship between peoples. It's not, it's, this is not just a private Right. Family story. All right, let's pick it up because um, the story gets more interesting. You ready? Yes. Okay, verse six. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was displeasing to the Lord, and the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Join with your brother's wife and do your duty by her as a brother-in-law and provide offspring for your brother. But Onan, knowing that the seed would not count as his, let it go to waste whenever he joined with his brother's wife so as not to provide offspring for his brother. What he did was displeasing to the Lord, and the Lord took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Stay as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up for he thought he too might die like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. Okay, we have talked before on the show about this this system called Leverite marriage that seems to be what, that the the set of social rules that are at play in the background here, Mm -hmm. and they are very unfamiliar to your typical modern... Westerner. Sure, yeah. Will you will you help us understand what's going on? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting what's going on here because there's a real concern in the ancient world about lineage and about your family line continuing and about inheritance and who receives your inheritance when you die and all of these questions about lineage and continuity. And one of the big problems in the ancient world and the biblical text is very much aware of the problem is what happens to a man if he dies before he has a son. And we're thinking Mm -hmm. about a culture that's patrilineal and passing down things to the eldest son. So what happens to you if you die without a son? And the concern is, you know, that you're just going to get cut off from your people because there's no one to carry on your name. So the solution to this in the biblical text, and it's from a passage in Deuteronomy 25, is that if you die without a son, then your brother should marry your wife and have a child with her. And that child, even though it was fathered by your brother, becomes your child. It's the child of the dead man. 
And so this is a mm-hmm. way of continuing on somebody's lineage and passing along their inheritance, even though they died childless. So that's what's happening here is Ur has died, and so he doesn't have a an heir, and so passing along to Onan, and then on to uh, Shelah. What what else would you say about leveret marriage? I that's what I know. Here, this is my deeply intellectual thought about leverite marriage. This is so weird. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not like, I mean, it's weird in in that you can see the parents that this child has come from, but you decide yeah. that that's not their parent. Yeah. It's fascinating to me, and I wonder if, I wonder how much of it is the question of inheritance, as you mentioned, um, and in this case, you know, Ur is the is the firstborn who has died, right. so right. he would have been the person to get the inheritance, and he doesn't have anyone to pass it on to, so that's right. that's an issue, or how much of it is just the sense that the only way that the people in this culture had an idea of of their life not being just this blip in the time-space continuum was through lineage. Like it was like more this existential fear. Right. No, I think that's really important. I think that's really important. And Ecclesiastes kind of deals with this issue of if you die and you don't have any kids or your kids are idiots or whatever, then what's (laughs) what's your life even been for? And, you know, that concern is, I think, very much in the the back of— the minds, maybe in the front of the minds of the people who thought of this idea of leverant marriage. How do, how do we yeah. have any significance and any continuity? So it really would be like the ultimate, I gift is the wrong word, but like the ultimate thing to do to say like, I'm going to father a child yeah. so that you will have lineage. Yeah. You who are deceased and yeah. so can, you know, <laughs> yeah. you can't pay me back, you know? Like, yeah, no, Absolutely. This is totally, oh, it's like, you know, we think it's a big deal if you like donate a kidney to somebody, like <laughs> you donate a kidney to your brother who needs a kidney or whatever. Like this is like that, but like a whole other, a whole other level. Yeah. And you don't know that you're going to be able to have children of your own. So to, you know, to take your first child and, and give it to your brother. Yeah. It's, it's significant. So why do you think Onan won't do it? Yeah. First, Amy, I have to, I don't know. Does this happen in the Jewish world? I don't know. There's this whole line of interpretation that Onan spilling his seed, uh, it means you shouldn't masturbate. Is this, have you heard that before? I am aware of this line of thinking and would like to understand what kind of sex education these readers <laughs> had because that does not appear to be what is happening here. This is... The, the esteemed professor, John D. Levinson, in his class on Genesis, I remember him standing in front of my introductory class at Harvard and saying, this, my friends, is what we call coitus interruptus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, the, the point is if you spill your seed on the ground, then that God curses you for that. And so, like, however that happens to be, like, um, semen should be for the purpose of productivity, reproductivity, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think is how people get there. But 
Yeah. This text is not about that, even if you understand it no. so broadly, because this the problem with Onan is that he is supposed to fulfill this law of leveret marriage for his brother, and he's refusing to do it. Yes. Judah tells him to do it. Onan says, this kid's not going to be mine. He does it to, it's in verse wherever we are. He does it in verse 9 to keep from providing offspring for his brother. You know, Onan's concerns are about lineage and about inheritance. And the point you were making before is really important that Ur was the firstborn and now he's gone. And so now Onan is the firstborn, or at least the first remaining born. And so he's going to receive a larger share of the inheritance. He's going to receive the family property and all of those things. And so if he has a son for Ur, then now Ur's got a lineage. And so that that's all going to revert back yeah. to him. And yep. so there's a, I mean, it's a financial concern for Onan. Mm-hmm. And it's, I guess there's some sort of dignity perhaps, or like a position, positionality within the family. So it's all about the way I read it anyway, is he doesn't want to do his legal responsibility or his familial responsibility to his brother because he's protecting his own interests. Yeah. Is that how you read that? Or would you, would you say something else about that? No, I think that's right. I mean, it's, it's a pretty big ask. It is. It is. <laughs> it's a pretty big ask. And I I guess I wonder, like I feel like in a lot of this text, there are these social norms that are at least publicly accepted by people. And then there are these stories of people kind of trying to get around the social norms. And I, I wonder reading this, like this I guess would be one of those occasions, like Onan is supposed to do this. And it's not that he refuses to sleep with her, which would be the way to explicitly refuse. <laughs> right, that's true, and that's say, true. say like, I reject this social norm, I'm not doing it. It's that he's interrupting the process per, I don't know whether, I mean, in a way that makes it more private. Yeah. You know, in a way that it looks like he's trying to fulfill his responsibility, but it's just not working. Yeah, oh, that's interesting, that's true. I wish I could make the case that if he had explicitly refused and said, no, this is a terrible social practice and I'm not going to do it, that it would have worked out better for him. I don't think I could actually make that case. But I feel like what's distressing to me about Onan is that he's making it look like he's doing the social norm, but he's not doing it. And the person who gets pinched by that is Tamar. That's exactly right. Yeah, You know, like all these men have agreed on some kind of rule that they're pretending to follow. Yeah. And and it, it's Tamar who gets who gets stuck in that. That's exactly right. There's one other, I don't know, theme or or issue, I don't know, that that arises for me in this in these couple of verses of text. And it, it's okay, I'm curious what you think of this. I, I'm very interested in the fact that the text which tells us very little about what any character really thinks of anything. Like, it doesn't tell us what Judah thinks when his son dies. It doesn't, you know, like, we don't get a lot of interior life. But it makes explicit for us the fact that what is in Judah's mind when he decides not to allow Shela to sleep with Tamar at this point is that maybe he will die too. Can you just like try to play that out even more like how do you, how do you understand that do you think that he thinks tam- it has something to do with tamar yeah yeah that's exactly what i think 
is that the way he has processed this is everybody who marries Tamar dies. Yeah. And whether, you know, exactly how that works out, whether he thinks Tamar is somehow cursed or whether he thinks God dis- disapproves of people who marry Tamar, like, I don't quite know how he's thinking about that. But to me, that yeah. seems clear is that Ur is struck down because he's wicked. Onan is struck down because he's pretending to fulfill his obligations, mm-hmm. but he's actually not. And then exactly what you said, the way it plays out is Judah decides it's Tamar's fault. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I kind of, I mean, I don't know what you would think, right? If both of your kids' sons married the same woman, they yeah. both died. Like, I, I don't know what I would think yeah. about her, but I don't know that I'd want my third son to marry her. Like, mm-hmm. I, like I kind of get where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. And it seems like Shalah is still pretty young. He's got to grow up. So if you think about Judah, he's, he's got three sons, and he thought he was going to have a nice lineage for himself, and then two out of the three yeah. have died. He's only got one more. And so if he dies, yeah. then Judah's line is cut off. And so, like, I yeah. mean, you kind of – it's complicated. You kind of get what's what's going on there for him, but – I do. No, I mean, I think that's exactly right, and I'm glad you pointed out that, like, he started with three sons, and he's down to one. Yeah. It just makes me – it seems in some ways so true to life to me that in these moments of like real tragedy, the death of two sons that we kind of cast around for what could have caused it yeah. and sometimes wind up blaming, blaming other people who are just as stuck in the tragedy as we yeah. are. And so it's, it, that really sucks. Yeah. And it's real. That is a, that is a thing we do. I love that, Amy. And, you know, that way that you just said that where people who are just as stuck in the tragedy. And it's now that you said that, it's very clear to me that this is a tragic story, like to this point for Tamar. But I don't know that I would have described it that way. But she's now been married twice and lost both her husbands. And she's mm-hmm. been living with somebody who wouldn't, didn't want to have children with her. And like she's experiencing loss on all kinds of levels. And maybe she actually, like, you know, even though these were wicked men, like, they were also her husband. And so there's right. a personal loss there, too. That's helpful to me to think to think of the tragedy that's there. That's me pulling out the tragedy <laughs> for you, Bobby. <laughs> so I'll just say just one last quick thing about this. You know, Judah sends Tamar to go, quote, stay as a widow in your father's house. And we don't know a whole lot at this point about what that means. I mean, we don't find out a whole lot about what that means at all. But uh, it's not like she's just living in the world as a single person now. There is, she has a, her, she has to live as a widow with her father. Mm, yeah. That brings up another question for me, actually, that I, that I was curious about is, what ethnicity do you read Tamar? as belonging to? Mm. I mean, I guess I sort of assumed she was Canaanite because her father's Canaanite. Is he? Mm-hmm. We don't know anything about. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. I don't, you're right. We don't know anything about her. I was thinking about Judah's, Judah's wife is Canaanite. Judah's wife's father is Canaanite. Right. But I don't know anything about Tamar. Yeah, I think that's the question. I've always read mm. Tamara's Canaanite too. And I think the reason is because 
you know, Judah seems to be around people who are not Israelite. So there's a man of Adullam, there's a Canaanite, he marries a Canaanite. It seems to be the people that are around are Canaanite. I don't know that it matters. I've tended to read Tamar as a Canaanite. Amy Jill Levine, when she read my book in which I described Ruth as, or sorry, my book in my chapter on Ruth, I described Tamar as a Canaanite and Amy Jill Levine objected to that. And so, Mm. so I don't know. I don't know what to do with that, but anyway. (laughs) I mean, yeah, the text is not explicit about it. Although, as you said, Judah is living, you know, surrounded by, he's not, he's not living in an environment surrounded by other Israelite tribes. Yeah. And the text, in other cases where we've known that to be true, makes sort of a big deal out of going to find a wife. That's true. From yeah. your tribe's people, some cousin somewhere. Um, and here, it doesn't, it doesn't say anything about that. Yeah. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. We hope you're enjoying our special summer series on women of the Hebrew Bible. Amy and I are grateful to you for being part of the Bible Worm listening community. If you're looking for more Bible Worm resources, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. There you can sign up to receive early episodes, weekly liturgies, and video Bible studies that go along with the podcast. Or for just $4 a month, you can support our ongoing work and help keep this podcast freely available to the public. Plus, you'll receive a snappy Bible Worm sticker that will make you the envy of all your friends and family. Patreon.com slash Bibleworm Podcast for details. And now back to this week's episode. All right. Now things really pick up, Bobby. Mm. You ready? <laughs> Verse 12. A long time afterwards, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. When his period of mourning was over, Judah went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, together with his friend Hira the Adulamite. And Tamar was told, your father-in-law is coming up to Timnah for the sheep shearing. So she took off her widow's garb, covered her face with a veil, and wrapping herself up, sat down at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up, yet she had not been given to him as wife. When Judah saw her, he took her for a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. What, she asked, will you pay for sleeping with me? He replied, I will send a kid from my flock. But she said, You must leave a pledge until you've sent it. And he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your seal and cord and the staff which you carry. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she conceived by him. Then she went on her way. She took off her veil and again put on her widow's garb. Mm. Bobby, the contrast between Judah's experience of losing a spouse and Tamar's is what prompted me to start sending you all those texts with a lot of profanity in them. <laughs> yeah. Can you just unpack that for me a little bit? I mean, for both of them, it is a terrible thing to lose a spouse. Yeah. And Judah has a period of mourning. It doesn't say how that period is determined. But at some point, it is over. And he picks up 
with his regular life. And he's back with his buddy Hira. And they're going to this sheep shearing. Yeah. Let alone the fact that he picks up who he believes to be a prostitute on the way. Like, we won't even get to that part quite yet. Meanwhile, how many years has it been? Yeah. For Tamar. We don't know, but it says a long time afterward. And it tells us that Shala has grown up. And so it's been at least however long that was. I don't know how. It's been a while. It's It's been been a long time. It has been a considerable considerable period of time. Mm -hmm. And then this detail that she took off her widow's garb. Yeah. Look, I don't know exactly what that means. I'm not sort of an... I have no expertise in these things. But just the very idea that, like, her status as a widow controls what she can put on her body. Like, yeah. her her entire—it's not just that she has to manage her grief or her figure out how to make a living or, you know, any of any number of things that would come with losing a spouse. Like, she's—it's like she got frozen in time, yeah. and they just— like, Judah just left her there, frozen in time, because he didn't know what to do. That makes me really mad. Yeah, that's exactly right, Amy. And, you know, she's she, does, you're, she doesn't have the option to find another husband. Right. Because she's been told to wait for Shayla. And so she, frozen in time is exactly right. She, there, she has lost any ability to live a life she just has to be marked by this perpetual loss. Right, loss and waiting. And waiting and loss for and waiting. waiting for something that's never going to come. It's it's very clear that right. Judah has zero intention. Has no intention. He's just going to leave yes. her there and, and let her live her life out that way. Right. And even after he has lost his own spouse, it it, it does not prompt him to think of her in her widowhood. Yeah. He just picks up with, yeah. with his own life. This might be a stretch, but, you know, we love a stretch. (laughs) When it tells us in verse 13 that Tamar was told, your father-in-law is coming. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in sort of the the passive voice there. Like, the text doesn't really care who told her. Yeah. And it makes me wonder, like, was she told just as conversation? Like, hey, we heard this is happening. Was she told, because this might be my fantasy, people recognized that she had, like, basically gotten shafted. Yeah. And her father-in-law is coming, and she should put herself in front of her father-in-law to be like, hello. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hello. Do you think there's a more reasonable read to that or a more productive? The text doesn't tell us. Like, this is an imagination question. It doesn't tell us, but it also tells us in verse 14 that she saw that Shayla had grown up and now and had not been given to him as mm-hmm. his wife. And like it can't just be that she like she's already dressed up before they get there. And so she had to have been told that. When it says she saw that, somebody had to have told her. Yeah, you're right. And so I think, you know, it's not exactly in the text, but it does seem like there's somebody or some bodies who are communicating with her about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I I, lo- I love the way, you know, Will Gaffney uses the phrase out of her tradition of sanctified imagination. And I really like that. Like the, biblical, the biblical text only takes us so far, but then there's like a, a holy imagination that you can sort of fill in some gaps around. 
and I, I love the way you've kind of filled that gap. And I, it's not in the text exactly, but it's also not, not in the text. And it, it adds some texture. Yeah. It just, it keeps, I keep seeing this like little bubbling up of like, there are a lot of people who recognize that this system doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> it's just no one's, no one is doing anything about it yet. Yeah. It's interesting because it's not clear to me that the system of leveret marriage is being critiqued here, is it? I don't necessarily think so. But the way that this particular group of men is failing to practice that, the tradition of leveret marriage properly, like it, I think mm-hmm. what's being critiqued here is they're f- failing to do what is supposed to be done. So yes, it is a troubling yeah. practice. Uh, in a lot of ways, but I think what's really troubling here is the way that it's being practiced. I, I mean, I think the way that it's being practiced and what it's troubling when it's when it is practiced, and then the question is when people don't follow the rules, who gets pinched? Right, exactly. You know, and certainly Ur and Onan got pinched. I mean, they got killed. Yeah. So it's not that they didn't have any consequences, but but they both had some sort yeah, of agency in what happened to them. Yes. Bobby. Yes. This this little um, tryst mm. occurs. I'm interested in the setting of this. Yeah. So it says that she is sitting at the entrance to a Naim, which we assume is a city, which is on the road on the way to Timna. I don't know. If you try to get your head in sort of like a literary frame of mind, or you could put your head in any frame of mind you want. <laughs> Is this the kind of thing that could have just happened anywhere, or is there something, is it important that this happens in the kind of place that it does? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I think of a Naim as being like a place between places. Like, mm-hmm. it's not here and it's not there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, we haven't made it all mm-hmm. the way to mm-hmm. Timna yet. And so I think, yeah, I think the in-betweenness of it is important because Judah thinks he is in place a place where he is not known. And so his I think he feels free to do mm-hmm. what he wants to do without worrying about the repercussions of it in terms of his community. Mm-hmm. How how do you think about that? I mean, I th- I think about it, I think about it pretty similarly that, you know, sitting at the entrance of a city that's on the road, on the way to another city. Like it's this very liminal space and like travel can be sort of a liminal time. And I feel like, at least in, in my own life, there's some like unspoken understanding that the usual rules don't have to apply when you're- Yeah. Traveling. Like we eat things we wouldn't eat. We drink things we wouldn't drink. Like- some some people in generally monogamous relationships have agreements that when they're traveling, there's a different set of rules at play. And so I guess this, this part of the text had me wondering, like, how do people in the, in the, the power group, quote unquote, in society, which like men in, in this particular story, operate differently in liminal spaces? Yeah, maybe it's the fact that he's in a liminal space geographically and he's also in a liminal space between mm-hmm. having been married and now like having just come out of a time of grieving and like there's a lot of liminality yeah. here. 
And so maybe maybe simply saying that the fact that he's not experiencing or expressing shame about this may exactly be about the liminality that may have given him the freedom to do it. Okay, we have to talk about clothing. We can't read this story in the context of the Joseph story without talking about clothing. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a more specific question than that. (laughs) Do you... I mean, clothing and changes of clothing and being marked in your status by yeah. particular clothing is so important to the Joseph story. Yeah. And already we have we have a change of clothing here that's really important to the story. Can you just talk a little bit about, I don't know, clothing and status and identity and some of that stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting the way this is told because she's been wearing her widow's garments for some unknown period of time. Then she changes her clothes and sort of becomes someone else, at mm-hmm. least in the eyes of Judah. And then immediately after she switches back into her widow's clothes. And so it's not that she's shed the way that she's marked mm-hmm. by society. She's just shifted it for a moment. Mm-hmm. And sort of escaped her identity. And yeah, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of like when Clark Kent takes off his glasses and now he's Superman and <laughs> nobody notices. <laughs> I guess yeah. she's wearing a veil. So maybe that, maybe that's the difference. But it's interesting that when she's not marked the way she is supposed to be marked, so to speak, that she suddenly becomes unrecognizable. Yeah. Like you're expecting a widow and you see her dressed differently and you don't realize it's her. What would you say about the clothing here? I I love what you said, and I don't think I have a lot to add to it, but I think it's, it is notable that, like, the world knows how to interact with her mm. because of her clothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is maybe maybe an aside, but when it when it says that she changed her clothing, it doesn't say that she dressed like a harlot. <laughs> That's true. It says that she put on a veil and, you know, she sort of wrapped herself up. Like it doesn't sound like she's I mean, you don't know what she's what she's going to do other than that she's she's intentionally taking off her widow's clothing. Yeah. And it is it says the text says it's precisely the fact that she has a veil that makes Judah think she's a harlot. I wonder if it's the combination of the veil and the sitting outside the gate. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like weary travelers coming by and there's just sort of a social understanding about what it what that means. Yeah. Yep. Yes, we'll see more about that in the next the woman we'll read about Rahav, who also mm-hmm. is is right out on the borders of a city. It is interesting, too, when you think about her as a harlot or the CEB that I'm reading as, as a prostitute. But she isn't the one who initiates this interaction. I mean, she goes and sits mm-hmm. there, but the text is very mm-hmm. clear that Judah went over to her and said, come now, let me sleep with you. Yeah. And so this is not like, you know, a prostitute who's soliciting sex, like right. we might think of it. This is a woman sitting veiled next to the city gate, and he assumes that mm-hmm. that's what she's doing there, and he initiates. Mm-hmm. She's not the she's not the one. Right. I don't know what where that goes exactly, but 
she's not really trying to seduce him. Right. She just kind of knows that that's how that's going to go. Yeah. I have so many different thoughts going through my head. I can't like finish one thought and get it out of my mouth before another thought starts. But then, so when when she he solicits her, she says, what are you going to pay me? And then she asks for some kind of pledge. Yeah. It's kind of a weird pledge, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, later it becomes a little more clear why she would want this particular stuff. But does this make sense to you in the context? Is this like, leave your driver's license so I can? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's how. Later? Yeah, I think to me that's how you're supposed to read it when you're first going through the text. Like he promises her something that he does not have, and so mm-hmm. her question is, well, like, how am I going to know that you're actually going to give it to me? And so, I, like, I think that that is exactly what's happening there. Is I need something that is personally identifiable to you that you will need back so that I can make sure I get this sheep that you have promised me or a goat or whatever it is. We, I mean, the the irony, dramatic irony in this story is beautiful because we know exactly what's going on here, but, and she knows what's going on here, but Judah has no idea. And so it's kind of fun as a reader. I love it when I know things that characters don't know because I'm like, oh, don't, don't, don't do that, man. Do you think Tamar was? Do you think Tamar foresaw all of this? That oh she yeah. Said, if I if I sit by the gate, he's gonna yeah, oh, ask yeah. to sleep with. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. Don't do you not? I mean, I I don't know. I'm a little innocent. <laughs> like she just wanted to go find him. No and she no. She thought it would be modest to wear a veil. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. No, I think. No. I mean, I read her yeah. as she knows exactly what's up. I think. I think that is. I think that's probably right. Because why else would she change out of her widow's clothing? This guy's never going to give me her his son. I got to take matters into my own hands. I know exactly who this guy is. I know exactly what he's going to do. If I sit there wearing a veil, he's going to ask me to sleep with them. And when he does, I'm going to get something identifiable from him. I think that I I think she knows him really well, and I think she is very smart in her in her planning here. Okay, now I have another question, and then I know we have to move on, but. It, would, would sleeping with Judah fulfill the Leverite marriage situation, or does she just want to have a child? I would have to. I mean, that's an interesting question because um, my first response is yes, and I think my basis for the yes is the Book of Ruth, where Ruth ends up having a child with Boaz, who's kind of a distant relative, and that still seems to fulfill the law of Leverite marriage. Or mm. it's not exactly the law of Leverite marriage, but it's the like. This Something child like belongs yeah. to Elimelech. Mm-hmm. And so I think, like, I don't know if this is the letter of the law of leveret marriage, but I think the spirit of it is I need mm-hmm. someone in the family line to father a child to continue the, the family line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we can continue at this point to think about Tamar as really being pretty singularly focused on the legacy of her first husband. That's the way I read it. I would like to have a child because I am a human person. Or like maybe I'd ever like to have sex again, you know? Yeah. Any? I think think you're probably right. I think you could read all of that. I think you could read all of that. You know, what she has not done is broken her commitment to this family, Judah's family. True. By finding someone else. Like she could have done those things with somebody else. And so even if... Even in the maybe she wants to have a child, maybe she wants to have sex, maybe she wants to have a family, she remains committed 
to the way that Israelite law works and to her commitment to uh, the, the family of Judah mm-hmm. in a way that none of them were committed to their own family, mm-hmm. which to me is what makes her part of what makes her such a remarkable character is she is loyal to this family, even though they have not actually seemed to care that much. Like they would just as soon as right. she had gone away. Yes. And they they're, not loyal to each, they're not loyal yeah. to her and they're not loyal to each other. Yeah. And they don't care about following the law of liberate marriage. They don't care about their yeah. dead brother, their dead son. Yeah. Don't care about his strong, but they don't care about enough to make sure he's— Enough to do what it's asking them to do. Yeah. Right, which is a big ask, but— She's the only one. Yeah. Yeah. All right, should we see what happens next? Yes. Okay. Okay, I'm going to read just a tiny little section, and we'll, we won't spend too long on it. Okay. Picking up in verse 20. Judah sent the kid by his friend, the Adulamite, to redeem the pledge from the woman, but he could not find her. He inquired of the people of that town, where is the cult prostitute, the one at Anaim by the road? But they said, there's been no prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I could not find her. Moreover, the townspeople said, there has been no prostitute here. Judah said, let her keep them, lest we become a laughingstock. Mm-hmm. I did send her this kid, but you did not find her. I think my main question reading these couple verses, Bobby, is just, do you feel like you get any more insight into into Judah's character? Or, yeah, I think that's really my question. Do you feel like you get any more insight into Judah's character from these couple verses? I mean, I have two initial thoughts, and I'm curious where you where you go with it. One is he does what he says he's going to do. Yes which I appreciate about him. That has not been the case (laughs) in this story for the most part. I'm curious this last, in verse 23, so they can't find her. So they just say, okay, let her keep the personally identifiable stuff of mine that she has. Otherwise we'll be a laughing stock. And I I go back and forth between whether he's going to worried about being a laughing stock because he had sex with a prostitute or whether it's he worries about... It was an imaginary prostitute. An imaginary <laughs> prostitute. <laughs> or whether he's worried about like going and trying to track this person down and taking the stuff back because like, he didn't pay his prostitute. You know what I mean? Yeah. He what is he worried about? He didn't keep his vow, so that's going to make him a laughingstock. He said, I tried to do it. I just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Do you have a thought about what he's worried about? I... I first one of the one of the things that I learn about him is that he's worried about being a laughing stock. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And either that that's a personal worry, like that he's concerned what people think of him or that he feels like he's done something or or maybe to raise some question around we said before like is this just like a, you know, no big deal, you're on a trip, you yeah. go to a prostitute, you know, whatever or or does he not feel totally comfortable with it? I don't know the answer to that. I took it as, um, gosh, throwing my own question right back at me. I honestly took it as if you go and say, like, there was a prostitute here, where is she? And people say there was never a prostitute here. And you keep saying, no, yes, there was. There was. Yeah. You sound like it's like you have an imaginary friend who's yeah. a prostitute. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or else maybe it's just sort of not uh, – I don't know, maybe I'm projecting this, sort of culturally polite to keep talking about it. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know. It se- it seems to me that there is some discomfort around the fact that like he has a prostitute that he has to pay. Yeah. I think that's right. But also they like they're just asking around like, "Hey, anybody seeing the yeah. prostitute?" <laughs> you know. Yeah. So it's not like the secret covert thing or like this thing that I mean, I guess the guy who's asking is not the guy who had sex with her, but it just mm-hmm. seems like, you know, it's just, it's not a big, it's not a big deal. It's kind of, I still am kind of reading it that way. Yeah. No, I, I, I hear that. I love that it's the same guy that like, when the story starts out, it says, <laughs> yeah. due to move close to this guy, yeah. the Adulamite, you know, here are the Adulamite. And yeah. He, uh, and now he's having to go try to track down friends a all this time. And now he's going to it's go like, pay man, off. I should have better taste in friends. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Should we read the dramatic yes. reveal? Okay. This gets good. So picking up now in verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot. In fact, she is with child by harlotry. Bring her out, said Judah, and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent this message to her father-in-law. I am with child by the man to whom these belong. And she added, examine these. Whose seal and cord and staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, she is more in the right than I inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shella, and he was not intimate with her again. I mean, I would hope so. Did they really have to put in that last verse? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, apparently they did. <laughs> they okay. did. Yeah. But I mean, I'm glad. Like, you don't have to yeah. wonder now. Yeah. <laughs> Good. It will not keep me up at night. Uh, The first thing that strikes me here is that instead of coming to her and starting with, your daughter-in-law Tamar is pregnant. Yeah. It starts with, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. Yeah. Does it seem strange to you or not? Why do you think they, why do you think that's the, that's the headline? Yeah, I mean, to me, this seems very familiar. Like, this is kind of the way, you know, like pregnancy depends a lot on like the way in which one gets pregnant. Like it's either a sign of shame mm. in our society oftentimes, or it's a sign of blessing or like how, you know, you did what you were supposed to do. Like you're pregnant within certain kinds of family structures. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I don't think, like I don't like that this is the way that they announce it, but it seems very true to life to me that they're like, she had sex and she's pregnant. Because mm-hmm. if you just said she's pregnant, you might be like happy about it. You know what I mean? Like, wow, life, you know, a new life. Yeah. Right. And and because society has, there is no way for her to have sex at this point in her life yeah. that is legitimate. That's right. Exactly right. They can assume that the fact that she's pregnant yeah. mean that, means that it has come through harlotry. That's exactly right. And so the only possible source of the pregnancy is a shameful source. And mm-hmm. when that is the case, it's it's the shame that matters to people yeah. then and, and I think now as well. Mm-hmm. And Bobby, I'm just going to – I just can't <laughs> even with this story. Yeah. I just I – mean, no. Burn her? Yeah. 
I mean, okay, look, I know there were different social rules. I know theoretically there were different social rules and and arguably still are, but all the more so at this time. Yeah. But Judah just slept with a harlot. Like, I know he doesn't know it's the same person. Like, I, I, he doesn't know that yet. But like, what utter hypocrisy. Yes. To, to say like, to jump immediately yes. to let's torture and kill this person for doing precisely what I just did. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right, Amy. And, you know, to me, that's one of the things that stands out in this text is like the way that I've been reading it anyway is Judas. like when I have sex with a prostitute, it's no big deal. When a woman is a prostitute, she deserves to be killed. Mm-hmm. And like this cognitive dissonance like, it's not just Judah. Like, I think this is the way that often it is with men, that that they see their, our, we see our own actions as completely innocent, but the people implicated in them as completely horrible and deserving of death. And I, this text, I don't like, I don't like that dynamic in this text, but it is a, it is a dynamic that I think is a real dynamic real. in the yes. world. And this text I highlights it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And his like, I mean, the overreaction there of like, like put her to death, presumably is because, not just because she's a woman who is a prostitute, but because she is a woman who is supposed to be in mourning for his son. And so therefore bringing shame to him and his family. Right. This has become something of shame to his family that is publicly known. Now people are talking about her and- and supposedly, this fa- this family's trying to maintain an image that they are this upstanding family that plays yeah. by pretty strict social rules, even yeah. though we've seen again and again in this, in this story that they do not play by yeah. those rules. They yeah. just pretend they play by the That's rules. That's exactly right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they want to enforce that. the rules against but, vulnerable Right. Women. But when push comes to shove, they will absolutely enforce the rules on Tamar, I, I am imagining, especially because it's it's a public thing. I mean, right. I don't know. There's 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 not a, a good way to make pregnancy private. So like, right. that's the thing about pregnancy. Like people can people can see that it's happening. Yeah, and it's been three months. Yeah, yeah. so we're second trimester. Like we're not we're not pretending anymore. Mm-hmm. It just it makes people even crazier than they already yeah. are about yeah these issues. Yeah, that's exactly right. Bobby, Judah gets a lot of credit, I think, for admitting mm. his role mm-hmm. here. Like for for as soon as he is presented with like indisputable evidence, <laughs> yeah, he stands down. Yeah, and I am glad that he stands down. Yeah, but I just. I'm not that impressed. I mean, I guess I should be impressed because <laughs> yeah. he has he has all the power. That's the way yeah. the system is built. And what really makes me mad is that, the fact yeah. that he has all the power yeah. and she has no power. She yeah. is completely locked into this system and the mm-hmm. system doesn't care about her. They forgot about her. They just like yeah. shackled her up in widow's garb and and left her. Yeah. Okay, so we have, we have already sort of talked about this question, but I just, I want to ask it again with a little more point on it now that we're at the end of the story. Yeah. Is your understanding of the reason that Judah backs down is that he understands that Tamar has been 
laser-focused on the legacy of Judah's son, Mm. more focused than Judah has been, Mm. and that she has only done what she has done in order to fulfill these laws that Judah was supposed to be fulfilling that he just decided were too hard and stopped thinking about? Or do you think there's any broader realization that Judah has at this point in the story? And when you were talking earlier about whether or not to give Judah credit for backing down, I don't give Judah a lot of credit because what I think has happened is she has been so careful and smart Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. about the way that she has made her case precisely because she knows that the system is designed not to listen to her. She has gotten indisputable proof Mm -hmm. and he has nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. I read Judah as if he had anywhere else to go, he would go there, but he doesn't. Mm-hmm. He just, mm-hmm. he's stuck. And it, I mean, it reminds me of, like, there's always these evangelical preachers who are like anti-sex, and then it turns out they had mm-hmm. sex with somebody they weren't supposed to, and then they're like, yep. oh, mea culpa, I'll be a mm-hmm. better man, and you're supposed to feel sorry for them. And I'm like, you only ever, you know, acknowledge right. that because video, you had no yeah. other option. <laughs> yeah. Right. So like, I mean- Good for Judah. Like he sees he sees the error of his ways. He recognizes she was being righteous. Like good for him, but like I really think he only makes this move because she gave him nowhere else to go. And so, yes, he relents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, I think genuinely he probably does recognize that she's been acting righteously, but I don't know that it's her righteousness that makes him change his mind. I think it's that mm-hmm. she left nowhere else for him to go. Mm-hmm. Am I too cynical? No, I was going to say, you have him even knocked down a peg from where I put the <laughs> bottom peg, but but I like it. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I think you're right. Like she, Tamar knows exactly how the world works. And so she has everything lined up exactly the way that she needs it to be lined up. And, you know, when people read biblical stories like this and say like, oh, it's trickery and it's like premeditated and it's like, you know, trying to portray exactly this kind of thing as some kind of slight against the person who has done it. She literally had no other choice. Like she could, you know, rot in her father's house in her widow's garb, even understanding herself, let alone the fact that she is like a human being who might want to have a <laughs> a full life and children and a partner or sex or anything, you know, anything. Putting that even aside, there is no avenue left to her simply because Judah and his, well, at this point, really, it's just Juna, Judah, has decided they're not going to deal with this thing because it's painful and scary. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, when when people in society who have no other options— start getting into premeditated trickery, yeah, well, what? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how the system was built. That's how the system yeah. was built. And I mean, the way that she does it too is like, at the end of the day, she more or less has functioned within the system given to her mm-hmm. in a way that points out the flaws of the system, but also achieves the ends to which the system was designed, which is to have mm-hmm. an, an heir for her original husband. She just she couldn't get the people, the men in this involved in the situation to do what they were supposed to do any other way. 
But even in her kind of like figuring out how to work around the system, she has played it pretty by the book. Like she had, mm-hmm. she's like she could have like, I mean, I don't know what her options were really available to her, but she could have let go of her loyalty to this family of Judah and gone her own way. And she doesn't. So it's interesting to me that she is she is very smartly working the system in order to uphold the obligations that she takes very seriously, it seems, to this family, even though they have not been good to her. She's a fascinating character to me. And no, I like when you start when people start using words like manipulation and trickery and things like that, mm-hmm. like, yeah, uh, yeah, I just they don't they don't do justice to to what she's mm-hmm. about here, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I wonder what her options really would have been if she could have decided she was yeah. not going to be loyal to this family and go have another life. I I don't know if that really was an option for her. Mm-hmm. And I don't say that by in any way to yeah. like diminish her character. Just I don't know what her options would have been. Yeah. She had no good options for sure. She had no good options. Mm. Is there anything else you want to add on this last section of dramatic text? No, I don't really have anything else to say about about the text. But, you know, we've gotten me thinking all kinds of ways about how this text connects to our contemporary world. To me, it's one of those texts that, you know, I, I think I've already probably mentioned this every episode this season, but you often say things like, if you don't like what's going on in this text, look for places where it's happening in the world and do something about that. And to me, this seems like what I can take from this text is this text is exactly right about the way that patriarchal structures are set up to protect the interests of men and to leave women with zero options. And, you know, from reading it, I mean, like reading this text as a man and identifying with the male characters in this text just makes me want to say, like, we got to be better, (laughs) men. Like, my goodness. Uh, And just thinking about in our, in the US culture right now, anyway, and the conversations, the post row conversations about sex and sexuality and women's bodies and who has control over what women do with. Their, with themselves and their reproductive choices. And, you know, that is so upfront in this text. And this woman who has no agency in making decisions for herself has to find kind of her way around the men to get what she wants, or at least some semblance of what she wants. Like, I just, I feel like we continue to repeat these patterns from 3,000 years ago or whenever this text was written, they continue to be kind of the way humans do things. So, yeah, I mean, so I think that what, I, what I'm what i taking away from this text is if men could just back off a little bit and trust women to make good decisions for themselves, that we could save everybody a lot of heartache. I don't know that that's very profound, mm-hmm. but that, that's kind of where I, where I come out with this text. I really appreciate that, and I appreciate the simplicity of where you landed with it because it is really easy to make that whole issue a whole lot more complicated than that. But I don't know. I don't know that it 
that it has to be. So now I feel like maybe I'm just going to complicate what you just said in a, in an unnecessary way. Oh, no, I love when you complicate things. I'm, I'm much more interested in what you think about this text than what I think about this text. I think, you know, similarly, I reading this text at this moment in American history and, and trying to imagine what a post-Roe world is going to look like for my children and and, and not just for my children, I think what I'm struck by most in this text is not even the fact that, you know, men and women from the beginning have different rights in this story and different responsibilities and different levels of sort of seenness. Like, yes, all of that is true, and that's true in a lot of biblical stories, and yeah. it's true in a lot of times and places in the world. What's striking to me is that even even the the systems that that they pretend to adhere to <laughs> that they say like here are the rules that apply to us and they're like really rigid and hard things to follow they pretend that they're working yeah because when they don't work it's not their bodies that are going <laughs> to change the way they look, like they can get away with a lot of stuff, yeah. you know? Onan can pretend that he's fulfilling the law instead of just saying, this is a terrible law and yeah. I don't think we should do it. He just pretends that he's that he's following it. And it's and it's Tamar who then has has no other options. And you know, Judah and Tamar sleep with people at the same time, but Judah can keep it a secret if he wants to, and Tamar is to be burned. Mm. And it just, this this sort of like posturing mm. and pretending that, you know, we can uphold these really strict and sometimes in our society like puritanical ideas of what sex life should, should be. You know, in the example you were giving before about some, you know, famous person who claims to hold all these beliefs about what sexuality should look like. And then surprise, surprise, yeah. it turns out they're not following their own teachings, I just feel like the way society is, I shouldn't say the way society is structured. In some ways, it's the way biology is structured. If if you are capable of getting pregnant, it's a lot harder to sort of, you know, quote unquote, take a break from those strict rules and say like, oh, I'm on a trip and yeah. <laughs> there's someone I can sleep with. Or, oh, I'm going to like, I just feel like it's always, it's always, the people who can get pregnant who wind up holding the bag. And it's and and that there's a biological reality to it. But the fact that society won't see it and pretends when when there's some kind of surprise pregnancy that it must be that the woman did something, or that must be that the woman could control what was happening, or yeah. you know, should be in a position to handle this, it just it feels like like this weird sort of wink wink. You know, like, do, do do people not recognize that that nobody's following? No, I shouldn't say nobody's following these rules, but like these rules that we claim to have as a society are not really rules. It's just people manage to get around them without being caught. I don't know. That was that was a long and um, not very articulate, but but without any profanity. <laughs> <laughs> um, little tirade, but I think the hip the hypocrisy of it is what's really getting me today. 
And, you know, the thing that's coming back to me is the worst thing that was going to happen to Judah in this instance was he was going to get embarrassed. Mm -hmm. And the thing that almost happened to Tamar in this text is she was almost burned for being a prostitute. And the same action, Mm -hmm. the the consequences are completely different. I think that, I think that's really important. I hope our next text about women is a little, gets me happier. (laughs) I don't know. It's about Rahav. I do love Rahav though. Yeah, I love Rahav too. I love Rahav. I love Rahav. Well, thank you as always for a good conversation and for receiving my enraged texts before the conversation. And, um, Thanks, y'all, for listening. We'll see you next time. See you, Amy. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bibleworm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all our Patreon supporters for helping us make this podcast possible. Join us next time when we'll continue our summer series on the women of the Hebrew Bible, with the story of Miriam as told in Exodus 2, 1-10, and Numbers 12, 1-16. Till then, keep on digging.